This is 5 Minutes of Rum. My name is Kevin Updegrove. A bias. We all have one. Several of them, really. And that's not even automatically a bad notion. There's an unbelievable wealth of information at our disposal in this age. Not only is it impossible to obtain all of the information, it's not even practical to process all of the information. And one way we filter and compartmentalize information is through bias. But it is a good idea to test those biases from time to time. Do really check in on them and see if they still have a usefulness. One of my biases is to generally put any rum from El Dorado into the, quote, dark Demerara style, end quote, bucket. Sure, I knew there was a silver rum from Guiana produced by El Dorado, and El Dorado 3 as it's known. Heck, I knew there was even an El Dorado 151 that is also silver, but I've never tried either of them. My bias pushed them to the side. Another bias? I enjoy many styles of beer from a porter to a pilsner and an IPA to a stout, but the idea of mixing beer into a cocktail was an idea that I considered even worth entertaining. Then I saw a video showing the unholy mixing of a classic 1944 Trader Vic's Mai Tai with an IPA. I watched that video in horror and knew that whether it ended up tasting like the devil's tears or like a cool wind on a hot day, I was going to have to try it. I was going to work through some of my biases and in all likelihood create a few new ones. Here in episode 58, I'll take on Eldorado 3, the book Cocktails on Tap by Jacob Greer, and make the Mai Tai PA. Now, before getting right into the Eldorado 3, I want to um, just do a, a quick plug, a quick shout out to um, a book that if you are a fan of this show, a listener to this program, and you share my love of Polynesian pop and tiki, you probably already have. But the uh, Smuggler's Cove book by Martin and Rebecca Kate has recently come out. Uh, I think it came out a couple weeks ago. Um, I picked up my copy, well, took a couple copies, got one that was pre-ordered through Amazon, and then picked up another one at the Hukulau because uh, Martin and Rebecca were doing a book signing, and so bought another one, had it signed there. Um, I think this is, uh, this is something that you're going to want to seek out. It's something that is very different from just a recipe book. Uh, there's history in it. There is, um, examples on how to throw a party. There's a ton of recipes. There's a, a whole new instruction on how to categorize and how to, uh, classify rum. Um, it's really, really, really very comprehensive. Um, I, I haven't finished reading it yet, so I'm not going to dive too deep into it, but I, I've flipped through it on many occasions. I've read the first few chapters. I'm kind of alternating between taking my time with it and wanting to rush right through it. Um, and so truth be told, I'll probably be done with it by the time the long weekend is out because I'm recording this right before the 4th of July. Um, but it is a, a very outstanding book. Um, I think there's a, a quote from Sven uh, Kirsten, who wrote the book of Tiki, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but essentially praising it for being sort of the book of Tiki for this current age and in light of the drink and hospitality industry. Um, so go out and get this book. I'll have a lot more to say about it. In fact, I'm developing the next show, including a recipe um, from that from that book. Um, and I'm, I'm sure I'll have a lot to, to say about it. But um, if you haven't already purchased it, which would be odd if you, again, if you're listening to this show and enjoying what I have to say, you probably already have it, uh, especially based on my social media, uh, Instagram, uh, feed. It seemed like everybody I followed got a copy of this book, but get to it. Um, again, I'm, I'm sort of alternating between, I want to make this last a long time and I want to rush right through it. Um, but go and get it. There'll be more. Uh, so consider that your homework for future episodes. Go grab, if you don't already have it, the Smuggler's Cove book by Martin and Rebecca Kate. Uh, and there ends my, uh, free plug, um, out of my love for what they're doing. Okay. So Eldorado three, 
Um, this is the Eldorado that sticks out in the line you know, in their line of rums by being see-through. Um, I see I see this rum come up as a mixing rum in several cocktail blogs I follow. So while it's not a ubiquitous rum that you see all over the place, it does seem to have a place in the bar of many people that I, I read or follow online. Um, and as mentioned already, this was a rum that I simply had passed over because it didn't fit my narrative of a Demerara rum or a Guianese rum. Um, but I think that I always knew that if I'd find my way to this bottle eventually, um, the 151, on the other hand, I might choose to avoid indefinitely. I'm not still not so sure about that rum. Uh, let's let's go through my tasting notes, and then we'll get into the production notes and a little bit of uh, information I found about the rum online. So starting with uh, appearance and tasting notes, uh, the appearance-wise, this is the standard issue as of 2016 bottle for Eldorado's mixing rums. Um, that's my categorization, um, although you know I, I consider their mixing rums the, the three now, the five, and the eight. Uh, I also mix with the 12 and on rare occasions the 15, but don't tell anybody that because that'll get a, some people up in arms. Um, but this is what I this is what I classify as their mixing rums. We'll get into a bit what they consider this line of rums. Uh, the bottle has a screw top. Uh, it's a clear rum and an Eldorado label. Now it's always fun to taste a silver rum as it makes easy work of describing, uh, you know, gold and brown. Um, you know, on a lot of rums you have to come up with different ways to describe gold and brown. Not so much with the silver rum. You just have to say it's clear. Because uh, if it's not, that's that's probably a sign that you have a bad rum. Um, from a nice line, you know, it, when you swirl in the glass, it forms a nice line. Um, it quickly gives way to rapidly descending legs down the side of the glass. Uh, in terms of aroma, um, my experience with this rum, that it was more pungent than I expected uh, and kind of astringent in the glass right after swirling, uh, especially considering it's an 80 proof rum. Uh, it smells very clean and doesn't overly overtly announce any sweetness. Uh, the primary notes for me on the nose were of uh, uh, vanilla and baking flour. Uh, there's also a little bit of coconut hanging around too, although that only came to me after the fact as I read about the rum. I, I didn't pick up on that at first, but then I went back and retasted it, and sure enough, you could definitely get that hint of coconut. Now, taste, I found um, on the sip, it was mildly warm with very little sweetness. Uh, it's almost creamy tasting, but a, a light kind of creamy, not a heavy creamy like butter. Uh, the taste is kind of representative of the nose, which isn't always the case when you're uh, smelling rum and then tasting it. Uh, the taste isn't as assertive as I found the aroma, though. Uh, this isn't necessarily what I think of when I think of a quote-unquote Demerara rum, but I think it's true to what it's trying to be. It's trying to be a lighter-bodied mixing rum that has a nice age on it. Uh, and it, again, something I noticed after the fact when I went back and revisited it is that it has a, a lightly toasted coconut flavor right before the finish. Now, the finish itself... I found it to be pleasant, if a little slight. Uh, it doesn't hang around, but it also doesn't turn to another flavor and offend. Um, it, you know, all in all, not, kind of a quick finish. Didn't really notice it too much. Uh, to sum up this rum, don't think of this as a Demerara rum recipe substitute. So if you see Demerara rum in a in a cocktail recipe, don't reach automatically for the Eldorado 3. Uh, think of this more as a mixing rum when something calls for a, a lighter rum. Um, I'm interested to know what DDL stills are being used for this rum. Uh, that was a note I made when I was originally tasting it. This reminds me of a slightly aged column still rum. Um, and of course, duh, three is in the name, so you know it's slightly aged. Uh, and maybe there's a bit of pot still in there, but it seems too smooth for that. Um, I don't know for sure if this rum will be in heavy rotation in my home bar, but that might be because I have a lot of similar, similar slots filled with, say, Plantation 3, Banks 5, Kanye Brava, and more. It kind of fits into that profile, that style. Now, the collector in me wants to buy a bottle and put it away. The cocktail enthusiast in me wonders where the bottle fits 
at least until I expand my bar to accept more bottles. And I've yet to make a daiquiri with this rum as I was focused on the recipe for this show, but I'm definitely going to go back and revisit this rum and daiquiri form because I do think it'll work well. Now, some production notes, uh, official production notes from the website, which is linked to in the show notes. Um, this rum is marketed under Eldorado's fine cask aged line, which includes the three, the five, and the eight. So that's what I call their mixing rums, but that's what they call their fine cast aged rum. Uh, rum excuse me. Uh, see episodes of this here show, uh, episode eight for the uh, discussion of the Eldorado five and episode 24 for a discussion of Eldorado eight. That's a lot of numbers. Uh, those links are in the show notes as well. The Eldorado site tells us that the um, Eldorado three rum is twice filtered in charcoal and then aged in 45 gallon former bourbon barrels for at least three years. Uh, frankly, it must be filtered again at the end of that process or else it would not be the queer product you see in the bottle and glass. Um, it would have barrel elements coloring it lightly brown. So I'm going to go ahead and speculate that they have those steps in the wrong order on the site and that it's aged first for those three years in aged bourbon uh, barrels and then it's twice filtered through charcoal so that way it's clear when they when they bottle it for uh, for sale. Now I also can note that this is a molasses-based rum, but candidly I didn't really need the official site to tell me that. It's very definitely not a rum agricole. Um, unfortunately, while the Demerard Distillers Limited site has good background on their stills, they don't really delineate which stills are used for which rum specifically, so we kind of got to go outside the lines for that. Uh, so that's being, that being said, let's see what information the internet can provide on this rum. Now, reading the reviews that were linked to from the Ministry of Rum, uh, this rum, rum came to market about seven years ago in 2009 and was meant to be an aged version of their unaged white rum. So based on the Eldorado rum I see on the shelves locally, I don't believe the unaged rums are on the U.S. market, or at least they're not easy to find. Now, from the Chemistry of Cocktail site, uh, I found out that the Eldorado 3 is a blend of distillates from two different of their four-column Saval stills. Uh, this comports with my tasting experience. It didn't taste like there was pot still present, although DDL, Demerara Distillers Limited, does have, have some very fine pot stills, and they use some pot still distillate in some of their uh, more aged rums, like their 12 um, I think they might even a little, I'd have to go back and, and uh, look at my notes for Eldorado 3, but I think they may have had some, I'm sorry, for Eldorado 8, they might have had some in there as well. In any case, aside from that, there isn't a ton of info out there to be unearthed. Uh, in essence, this is a very good white slash silver mixing rum at a very good price point. Uh, but it's not what you think of in terms of a Demerara rum as mentioned in classic tiki cocktail recipes. It's more of an adjunct to the line of rums rather than an extension of it. Uh, Eldorado's rums can be hit or miss to find. Most big retailers don't stock the full line. So in my area, BevMo, if they have any Eldorado at all, it's usually the Eldorado 5. Total Wine carries the 12, the 15, and the 21, but they don't carry anything from what I guess would be the fine cast aged line of rums. Uh, but some of the better mid-market stores have the full line of 3 through 21 and the 151. Uh, so local to me, High Time and Mission Wine and Spirits come to mind. Uh, it's not a high-priced rum. My bottle is about 17 $2016, which seems to be about the normal rate for a 750 milliliter bottle of a solid lighter mixing rum, which, as I mentioned before, is 80 proof, um, comes in at 40% ABV. Now, about that book, Cocktails on Tap, um, how did I find out about this book? Um, what was the origin of that? Um, so, somewhere back in March, um, in fact, according to my notes, it was March 13th, I ran across a video posted by Tales of the Cocktail. Um, and the video was of Jacob Greer, who uh, I ended up finding out was the author of this book, but he was doing a video on how to make a drink called the Mai Tai PA, which was essentially a 1944 Trader Vic's Mai Tai, in which an IPA was incorporated as part of that, uh, or 
a couple ounces of an IPA, I should say. I don't want to make it sound like there's a whole bottle in there. Um, anyways, at my first reaction was it sounded very intriguing, very weird, and I wasn't really sure it would work, but I knew that combining two of my things um, was at least worth the experiment, two, two of my favorite things. You know, so Trader Vic's Mai Tai, my favorite cocktail, and IPA, uh, one of my favorite beers because I like them a little bit a little bit hoppy. I know that's sort of the current flavor. But, um, I'm just glad that IPA is the current flavor of the month in terms of beers, and we're out of that whole wheat beer phase because that didn't do anything for me. Um, anyway, so I posted the video, um, and then I made one a little while later, probably a week later. Um, I found it actually, you know, I'll get to my notes on the cocktail when we get to the cocktail itself, but I, I definitely was encouraged enough by that um, to go and research the author's blog, which I found, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, and I found out that he had a whole book of things of this nature, that is mixing beer and cocktails. Uh, that book was called Cocktails on Tap. Um, I immediately went to Amazon and picked that up and had it sent to me. Uh, you can find a link to that video in the show notes as well. Again, it's something I put on the blog originally, but uh, but I will put a link in the show notes to it as well. Um, the book itself, um, this is mostly, this book is about the recipes. So it does begin with a how and why section, um, you know, uh, how about beer cocktails, why beer cocktails, a little bit of the history of what that is, uh, because it is a concept that, at least from my experience, would probably require a little explanation. It sounds a little odd if you're not used to it, but it starts to make a whole lot of sense, especially if you remember the U.S.'s history with cocktails. Something we talked about in an older episode, uh, the the flip where you essentially you uh, you mixed um, beer and cocktail ingredients together and stuck a hot loggerhead into it and created this foaming mess. Anyways, so there is a, a history of beer and cocktails, and, and this book talks a little bit about that in the beginning. But the meat of it really is the recipes and the d- description of what you know what's going into those recipes. And what I like most about the book is the approachability. Uh, there's a lot of experiments slash recipes, and the author is very inviting with the way he describes the components. Um, a couple of the interesting recipes that I pick out, um, some that I've marked for trial based on either the beer or spirit component that found interesting that I find interesting. Uh, there's something in there called the bolt cutter that includes Smith and Cross rum, Ray and Nephew rum, grapefruit and lime juice, cream sherry, and a Russian imperial stout or jat. So it sounds like a project, but it also sounds pretty good. Uh, so that's on the short list. Uh, there's a punch made with uh, Jamaican rum, brandy, and porter beer called the Blow My Skull. Uh, that's actually going to be made soon, um, and I'll and I'll you know possibly have that in a future show, but definitely something I'm going to make for a get together soon. There is a a cocktail called the Hopped Up Nui Nui, which is just like it sounds—a Nui Nui with the introduction of IPA to it, and something called the Yakima Sling, which is a lot like a Paloma, but which falls out of our topic here by virtue of being a tequila base. But I have made that one already, and actually it was very very good. Uh, check out the book. Uh, there's a link to the book, of course, in the show notes. There's a lot to experiment with, and it's a lot of it is very accessible to a home bartender. So I encourage you to check it out. It's not that expensive, and you'll have a lot of fun, I think, playing with it. Uh, unless you're not really a big fan of beer, in which case, move right along. Now, for those that are still with us, let's talk about the recipe in this episode called the Mai Tai PA. So the recipe comes um, from Cocktails on Tap and from the video that I talked about previously. Uh, this is Jacob Greer's book, and in the recipe that's posted in the book, he isn't too prescriptive on on the rums to use. The recipe as printed says one ounce of light and one ounce of aged rums. Now in the video, he mixes Eldorado 3 and Eldorado 8. Um, I've tried a few different versions, including uh, one that just used Denison Merchants Reserve. Um, I finally settled on Eldorado 3 and then Eldorado 12 and Smith & Cross. Incidentally, a 50-50 mix of Eldorado 12 and Smith & Cross is a suggested substitute by Hurricane Hayward of the Atomic Garage for 
Kohala Bay rum, which is a very distinctive Jamaican rum that's used extensively by the Maikai in their cocktails. Uh, Kohala Bay doesn't have wide distribution outside of uh, Florida, as far as I know, and is subject to disruptions in availability. Um, so Hurricane Hayward has developed some suggested alternatives, um, and I found that that 50-50 mix of Eldorado 12 and Smith & Cross does make a good blend. Now, the IPA component for this recipe, um, I'm going to use Sculpin from Ballast Point uh, Brewery. Ballast Point is from San Diego, at one time a small local brewer. They're now owned by Constellation Brands. Uh, they were purchased by Constellation in November of 2015. You, rem- you, you may remember Constellation from such brands as Corona, Modelo, Pacifico, Palmasan Brandy, and Svedka Vodka. Uh, Sculpin is the flagship IPA of Ballast Point, and it's one of my favorites. Um, finding Sculpin on tap, while not terribly hard, has become like a treasure hunt for me. Uh, and they make other variants of Sculpin too. It's so popular that they branched out. Now, I find Sculpin um, on its own to have a bit of a, um, not just floral, but also a bit of a fruity and a citrusy flavor. Uh, and they kind of took that and ran with it in a couple of different of the variants that they make. So there are there's a grapefruit Sculpin, there's a habanero Sculpin, and a pineapple Sculpin. Um, I, again, like I said, the original Sculpin does have a bit of citrus fruit to it. I think they just kind of took that and ran with it for the grapefruit. Um, I like that one, not as much as the original, but it does have a very strong grapefruit component. And they chose to highlight that part of the original Sculpin. Uh, the habanero was good as a novelty, but I would not want a six pack of it. It was good to have one and, and taste what they did with it. But all in all, it's not one that you're going to, at least for me, not something I'm going to drink all, all the time. Uh, the pineapple sculpin seems to be relatively new to the market, or at least I can just sort of start to find it recently. Uh, it again, like the grapefruit, is true to its name. It has a very strong pineapple flavor, and it's on, on, on top of an IPA. Um, I like that one as well. Um, you know, because of this book, I'm actually now thinking of other ways to mix beer into cocktails. And so, for example, I started thinking the pineapple sculpin might make a nice substitute in a bulu in place of the club soda. So. The Bulu has like an ounce and a half of club soda in it. What if you were to take out the club soda and what you're really getting out of that is you're getting a little bit of dilution and you're getting some um, some effervescence. Well, what if you mix in pineapple, which is already a big component of the uh, Bulu, uh, the pineapple IPA. So you get a little bit of that uh, effervescence still, but you're adding a little bit boost of uh, pineapple and, and uh, an IPA. And so that's an experiment I'll be uh, working on in a little bit. Um, and, you know, maybe reporting back in if it seems worth it. Now, Specifically for this episode, the Mai Tai PA, uh, this is one ounce of Eldorado 3, one half ounce of Eldorado 12, one half ounce of Smith & Cross, one ounce of fresh squeezed lime juice, and only fresh squeezed lime juice. Come on now, it's a Mai Tai. And always just use fresh squeezed lime juice. I don't need to make a disclaimer. Uh, one half ounce of Pierre Ferrand dry curacao, three quarter ounce of Orgeat, and one and one half ounce of an IPA, in this case using, again, the Ballast Point Sculpin. Combine all of those ingredients into a metal shaking tin and add ice cubes. Now, don't concern yourself with shaking carbonated liquid in this case. The amount is way too small to make an impact. Shake and then double strain into a double old-fashioned glass filled with crushed ice. Uh, The double strain, and there'll be a picture of that in the show notes, is using not just the Hawthorne strainer, but also then a fine mesh strainer um, on top of the glass before as you pour it into it. That will help catch stray ice shards and pulp. Uh, Plus, in this case, it's going to catch some of the foam that's produced when shaking the beer in the cocktail. For presentation, um, I like to garnish it like a classic Mai Tai, so half a spent lime shell and then some spanked mint and a straw. Uh, but feel free to add on with a parasol or a swizzle stick and just really make it your own. Uh, now taste. So what the heck did this thing taste like? Uh, that was kind of the whole point of the exercise, right? 
Now, to me, this ended up tasting a lot better than I expected. Um, I don't prefer it to a 1944 Mai Tai full stop, but I did enjoy it. Uh, it lengthens the cocktail and adds a lot of body to it. Um, I still get the expected flavors of the Mai Tai. The IPA doesn't step on them too aggressively, but you do get some of the sharpness from the hops that are in the beer. And depending on what IPA you use, uh, that effect will vary. In fact, uh, shout out to friend of the show, Trader Tom Morgan. He and I were discussing this recipe uh, and he suggested checking out a favorite IPA of his, the Total Domination IPA by Nin Kasi Brewing. Uh, I went out and purchased a bottle of that and can say in the affirmative that it also works well with this particular recipe. Uh, there's a link to them in the show notes as well. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. The show links are up on 5 Minutes of Rum. The 5 Minutes of Rum website is 5minutesofrum.com. That's number 5, minutesofrum.com. The show is also on iTunes as 5 Minutes of Rum. On iTunes, you can subscribe, you can rate the show, you can leave a review, you can do all those things or some of them. Uh, the show is also on Twitter and Instagram as at 5 Minutes of Rum. That's the at symbol, number 5 Minutes of Rum. Please send in any comments, corrections, feedback, or requests via the 5 Minutes of Rum website or on Twitter. And now... Go get some rum.